Welcome everyone to Evidence-Based Radio for tonight. Um, we have a bunch of stories to get into, but first I want to remind everyone that you can find Evidence-Based Radio during the week at Facebook. Um, so I do update the Facebook fairly regularly with stories that I probably won't get to or videos and, uh, you know, things that are more visual, certainly. And so if you're interested in seeing more sciencey type stuff during the week, you can find me there. Um, yeah. So let us get into it. So I wanted to start out tonight with a kind of a callback um, of sorts to something we, that I talked about last week. So I talked about rats, but adorable, adorable kitten-sized rats, I'm really trying to sell this hard, um, that sniff out tuberculosis. But as I had mentioned, they also sniff out landmines. Well, tonight, I actually want to talk to you about a different kind of landmine detection system. So there's a recent report from scientists who have been working on developing bacteria that will fluoresce when exposed to 2,4-dinitrotoluene, or DNT, which is a byproduct of the decay of TNT, um, which is, of course, the stuff that goes boom. Now, if you're not aware... Detecting landmines is kind of a big deal. It's estimated that there are around that around the world there are more than 100 million landmines. And a big part of the problem is that many of them are actually non-metallic. And so they're still hidden out there below the surface waiting for unsuspecting civilians mainly uh, to come across them and of course people are maimed die. Um, it's really horrible. And um, there are places that still have them from wars that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and so it's really a huge um, humanitarian crisis. And so any kind of scheme that tries to get more of these landmines out of the ground and properly disposed of is very exciting. So I like to um, keep up with these. And so they're actually, it's nice. Um, there are a lot of scientists who do do work on this. So um, I know there was another scheme at one point to create um, genetically um, manipulated uh, plants that would grow different colors over places that had um, TNT and DNT. But let's talk about this one. Okay, so the current research reported in the journal Nature Biotechnology, um, and that was earlier this week, it describes how researchers from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem have engineered a strain of E. coli to, to fluoresce green when in the presence of TNT and DNT, which is a byproduct of TNT again. And so the researchers took the altered bacterial cells and they placed them into um, seaweed-derived polymer beads, which they then spread across the test field. 24 hours later, they used a laser to find the spots that had fluorescent patches from 30 meters away. 
They told Science that they have since improved the detection time to three hours and are working on the other issues that can be involved, such as disposal of the residue after detection. They're also planning on programming the bacteria to have a limited lifespan. Um, and so that will help with the worry of, you know, introducing foreign bacteria into an ecosystem. Um, and they also are hoping to develop better technologies around the uh, bacteria, such as um, attaching a laser to a drone, um, which would obviously extend the range of detection. So again, this isn't glowing bacteria in the sense of if you just went into the field in the middle of the night, it would be just glowing. Um, it does fluoresce, which means there needs to be a light source, which means they need to point the green laser at the, um, at the beads in order to see whether or not they fluoresce. And so um, it's definitely pretty good. They found that they could detect they detected every one of the um, mines that had been left there for a while. Um, they weren't able to detect the ones that had just been put in, but obviously that didn't give them give the landmines a lot of time to leach out um, the chemicals that the bacteria are looking for. Um, and also they said that there was um, probably harder packed soil over those ones. And so, you know, obviously there's still a lot of work to be done, but all of these different um, ways of detecting landmines can be helpful because, you know, different things will work in different places better. Um, but of course, I'm still completely and utterly in love with the um, giant, African uh, rats, <laughs> the giant African pouched rats, I believe. Um, and so, yeah, uh, definitely look them up because they are adorable. I'll post um, some pictures of them uh, on the Facebook. <laughs> okay, so now that we've talked about real man landmines, let's talk about something that's more of a metaphorical landmine. So you've probably heard by now, it's been pretty much everywhere, that the company 23andMe has been granted permission to resume doing medical-related genetic testing. Now, they had actually been doing this initially, but at some point, Congress stepped in and said, um, we want to take a look at this before you do this anymore. So we're going to make you stop and we're going to do a review of this. And um, it's one of the few things that I think that is actually a um, decision that I agree with <laughs> from the government um, these days, uh, though this was a while back. Um, and so basically, they're back at it. So for $199 and a little bit of your saliva, you can find out supposedly whether you whether or not you have a gene variant that can tell you something about your risk for a few genetic diseases including whether you carry a variant called factor 5 Leiden in the F5 gene and a variant called prothrombonin G20210A in the F2 gene now the first diseases that the company will give you information about are late onset Alzheimer's, 
Parkinson's disease, the clotting disorder alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and Goucher disease. Now, they may roll out tests for factor 11 deficiency, which leads to excessive bleeding, uh, celiac disease, which we'll actually talk about in a moment, um, anemia, uh, anemia causing G6PD deficiency, early onset primary dystonia, which is a movement disorder, and hereditary hemochromatosis, a blood disorder. Now, obviously, I'm a bit dubious about all of this. Um, And so I think that one of the really important things to remember here is that even though this test probably is very, um, you know, it's not meant to be misleading in any way. It's very straightforward. Um, you know, generally your results will be correct. However, none of these tests are specifically for things where if you have that um, variant that you will get the disease. None of these diseases are fully penetrant, um, which is the phrase that they use. And so that means that basically fully penetrant diseases mean that if you have even one copy of the disease of the um, variant gene, you're going to have the disease. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, but for all of these, it just gives you a greater chance. And sometimes that greater chance isn't even all that much. Um, and so I think that that's one of the really important things to remember. And yes, some people can, you know, get this test and it's going to be very interesting to them. But if you don't understand genetics, and especially if you don't understand risk factors, um, as far as statistics, and especially if you're a hypochondriac, um, I personally would say skip this and just uh, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> um, and so James Beck, chief scientific officer of the Parkinson's Foundation, for example, said, it's important for people to know that even if they have a mutation in the genes, for instance, associated with Parkinson's that 23andMe will test for, by and large, they won't even, they won't get Parkinson's disease. And so he explained to Stat News that with a baseline risk of 0.3%, knowing that you have the N370S variant in the GBA gene only triples the risk of Parkinson's, of, you know, ending up getting Parkinson's, which basically brings your overall risk up to around 1%, which is still extremely low. Now, of course, the other the other side of it is also true. So you may get a clean bill of genetic health and still develop Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Even if you test negative for all known genes, your risk for the for that disease may still be increased based on your family history, said Mary F- Freivogel, president of the National Society of Genetic Counselors. A negative 23andMe test might provide false assurances. And so, again, this is all about kind of pros and cons. And I personally think that I'm going to keep my $200 um, 
and buy something else with it. Um, but, you know, it, it is interesting. And I do think that, you know, it's good for people to know more about genetics. Um, but I do worry that uh, people who are worriers and things like that, it can really, um, you know, get to you. And so, again, people might have false assurance, but I've found that no matter how much warning text you provide, some people are going to be compelled to view their results and then will worry about developing a disease that they may never, ever develop. Um, but, of course, the other part of that is that if it's a disease that doesn't have a cure, that adds to the anxiety. And again, um, you know, I think that this whole genetic testing thing is very cool in some ways, but it's a little bit oversold in other ways. So, um, you know, one of the big issues for all of these genetic testings uh, is it's only as good as the database that the company is using. So for genetic tests in general, um, offered by any company, the tests work better for some groups than others. So those with European descent have been most extensively studied and thus will be the most likely to receive relevant results. Those with Ashkenazi Jewish heritage are also well re represented because they have been studied extensively. Um, unfortunately, because that group of people have some very distinctive uh, genetic disorders, they've been studied by researchers who want to understand genetic disorders. And so we know more about basically how things in their, how um, mutations in their genomes cause various diseases. And unfortunately, uh, especially in Western medicine, um, as everywhere in medicine, in Western medicine, um, white people have been studied a lot more than anyone else. Um, so if you're a white person, you're going to have a better chance of, you know, this being relevant to you. Um, that's a whole nother <laughs> social justice issue that we could talk about for days. But anyways, um, and in addition, one of the reasons that I have not sent my saliva away to at least look at my genetic heritage is, again, because different companies use different databases, which can lead to different results, not generally hugely different, but still not quite the same. Um, and, you know, the problem is, is that generally humans have migrated and mixed to an extent that the variation except for very insular and distinctive populations, isn't really that different. Now, sure, I'd be interested to know if there really is any Native American ancestry in my past. You know, I'm from New England. <laughs> I have French-Canadian uh, descent, or um, that I am descended from French-Canadians in uh, my heritage. And so, you know, there's always the... the the idea, the story that's passed around in those kinds of families that, you know, somebody must have, one of the trappers must have married a uh, local. Uh, and so, yeah, that would be interesting, except it wouldn't be able to tie me to my ancestry in any real way. It wouldn't tie me to a particular group of people or gain me any understanding of how that ancestor or ancestors fit into my family tree. Um, I think the only cool thing that I would like to know is the whole, like, how much Neanderthal 
is there any uh, Denisovian, that kind of thing, I think might be really interesting. But as far as like genetic stuff, I don't think that there would be any big surprises. And again, it's going to get much better results for people who are European than for other people. Um, and, you know, I think that, again, it's kind of a waste of money. Um you know, but again, if you want to spend the money to do that, that's totally fine. And if it really excites you, um, I know my coworker's uh, boyfriend did it and she has been super excited about it. Um, she's been showing the results to everyone. Uh, not that there was anything interesting. Um, it's just the it's just the ancestry. It's not, you know, medical information or anything like that. But she's been pleased as punch about it. And I, you know, did not dissuade her from her happiness because... It was already done and she's gotten happiness out of it. So that's okay with me. Um, so again, um, as far as the health aspect of genetic testing, unless you have a family history for a rare disease or you have a interest in something that can really be reliably tested for, you know, I would give you the standard advice, save your money, uh, just keep trying to eat healthy, move as much as possible, and, you know, stick with other healthy life habits. Go out and listen to the birds right now. Um, remember that recently I told you that scientists have vindicated uh, pretty much every what everybody already knew, which is that hanging out in nature and watching birds and breathing in the air around trees is good for you. <laughs> I know, shocking, but... Part of the uh, exercise of science is that it's not really true until there's data for it. Um, you know, and that's important because there's a lot of things that people just assume are true that really aren't. For instance, the idea, um, I was just glancing at um, articles earlier and one of them was refuting yet again the idea that when a large group of women are in the same place that their um, menstruation uh, synchronizes and that is not true um, it is a very persistent myth um, it pops up all the time but it is not true it does not happen um, and so when you actually study it you find that it's not true. It's just people, you know, coincidences end up being snowballed into data. Um, so yeah, anyways, let's look at a completely different use for DNA now. Um, let's leave behind genetic testing and move on to information storage. I know it's very exciting, but actually it could be extremely exciting. Now, I do want to start out with a caveat uh, because I think it's important to do that when we're talking about something that could be amazing. But mm. so right now it's extremely expensive, much like any of these new kinds of things. Um, you know, computers were extremely expensive when they came out. Um, but, you know, I just want to I always like to. Um, be clear that, you know, this isn't something that's going to be on the shelves next week or that is going to be part of, you know, offices anytime soon or things like that. Probably never will be. It's probably always going to be something for like large institutions or government uh, storage facilities and things like that. But it's really, really cool what we could use. 
And so the possibilities of having a stable, compact storage device for potentially all of the world's knowledge, that's, that's what DNA information um, storage really could be. Um, and so it's definitely worth exploring and hopefully the price will come down and we'll start being able to use it. Um, and it's especially, it's got some better, um, it's got some things to recommend it over some of the other newer technologies that we've been developing. Um, and so it has a potential peak encoding limit of 1.8 bits per nucleotide, which means that the entirety, again, of human knowledge could be contained in two containers about the size and weight of a pickup truck. Yes, <laughs> the entirety of human history, everything every human has ever known that we can put down into on paper or into a film or through the radio waves <laughs> two pickup trucks. <laughs> so, you know, it's a it's a pretty interesting and exciting um, possibility. And so last month, Yaniv Ehrlich, a computer scientist from Columbia University, along with Dina Zielinski, an associate scientist at the New York Genome Center, reported on their success with storing and reading DNA. Now, they haven't, they're not the ones who discovered how to do it. That was, um, I think I talked about that like at least a couple years ago now. Um, but they have done the best job so far of actually making it work. And so they took six files, um, including a computer virus, <laughs> a computer operating system, an 1895 French film called Arrival of a Train at La Ciotat, and a 1948 study by information theorist Claude Shannon. In order to create the DNA storage, they first needed to convert the files to binary strings and then compress them into a single master file. And so that was then split into small strings of binary code. They then devised an algorithm called a DNA fountain, which converts the small strings into groups called droplets. And it also adds uh, tags to those droplets in order to um, aid in reconstructing the file. And so they created a list of 72,000 DNA strands, each with 200 bases. The file was then sent to Twist Bioscience, a San Francisco-based startup, which synthesized the encoded DNA strands. After two weeks, the pair received their prize, a tiny speck of DNA in a tiny vial <laughs> that was the encoding of their files. And so in order to retrieve the original files, they sequenced the DNA, which was then fed into a computer that used the tags to reassemble the six original files. This is the cool part. They successfully translated the information back into the usable files with zero errors and with a 1.6 bit rate of storage, which is 85% of the potential maximum achievable with DNA storage because the thing is is that you can't ever get exactly to or um, because there's always going to be some error along the line 
in a larger, um, you know, in a larger set. But the fact that they were able to get zero errors here was really cool. But again, <laughs> the issue is price. It took $7,000 to turn two megabytes of data into DNA and another $2,000 in order to decode the DNA to retrieve the data. It's also obviously at the moment a relatively slow process as you first need to synthesize the DNA and then you need to decode it. However, the benefits might again make it worth it. So one of the cool things about it is that it is scalable. So um, some of the other um, memories, memory uh, storage devices that people are working on that are sort of quantum level or um, single atom level, those are not scalable. That's a sort of a one byte per uh, kind of deal. But with DNA, I mean, you can have an entire row of um, DNA sequencers and, um, you know, PCR machines, and you could be doing all of this on a large scale. And so that is definitely a very cool thing. You could potentially, if it had, if you had the right tools and it was at the right price point, you could be decoding, uh, you know, a hundred. 100 terabytes of data in a warehouse. <laughs> That's just a, you know, a, a, that is a sort of pie in the sky idea. It's not really uh, anything like real at the moment. But anyways, <laughs> the other huge thing about it is, as I've mentioned, it's extremely compact, but it can actually survive for hundreds of thousands of years if kept in the correct conditions. So basically, if you store it in a cool, dry place, like many other things, um, it will last for a lot of, for a very long time. And it doesn't have one of the essential problems that most memory storage has today, which is obsolescence. How many of you have old file formats, uh, old memory uh, devices such as floppy disks or even the sad, sad zip disk technology that was basically outdated pretty much the minute after it was released. It was one of those tragic sort of Betamax kind of things, though I don't know that zip drives were better than um, the uh, CD-ROM that came out around the same time, the way that Betamax was better than a VHS. But um Unfortunately, ZipDisk came out and then pretty much like within a very short amount of time, um, the CD-ROM came out and that was just the end of ZipDisks. Anyways, um, so yeah, I think it is a very cool idea that you could store information in DNA strands. So yeah. Okay, we are going to take a break as it is that time. And then we will come back and, as I said, we're going to talk a little bit about celiac disease because there's some interesting information that researchers have been working on. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, 
Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Every day in the electronic media, people talk, or more likely yell, about politics. We do things differently. Our job is to talk about the things that we hope will be of interest to you without all the shouting and anger. We hope to provide facts and have reasonable discussions about the issues of the day. That is to disagree without being disagreeable. Join us every Friday at 7 p.m. for Civil Politics here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton or anytime online at civilpoliticsradio.wordpress.com. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Hey, kids. It's Archimedes and Dammit Dave from Poppy Geekery. And what are we listening to, Dave? Where are we? <laughs> Sorry, long pause there. I didn't know. you got to point to me. You have to, like, slap point me or something. Point to you. I said, we're going to do this. Is that okay? And you're like, yeah, that's fine. I did that, and then you didn't do anything. <laughs> hey, kids. What time is it? Sorry. <laughs> hey, kids. It's Archie and Dave from Poppy Geekery. Where are we at, Dave? We're in Northampton. Listening. <laughs> it was so easy. It was so easy. It was so easy. It was so easy. It's written on paper for him. It's written oh on paper. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Fire away. I'm ready. Go. Go. Okay. You sure? Go, Arch. All right. You can do it. <laughs> I can do it. Hey, kids. 
It's Archie and Dave from Pothry Geekery. What are we doing, Dave? You're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJ 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Very good. <laughs> hey, kids, let mom help with your science project. This new mom wants her kids' science project to thrive. Too bad she hasn't cracked a science book since 1985. A metathesis reaction? Compounds, mixtures, and elements. Even this baking soda volcano is too big of an experiment. Whoa. Now she's completely forgotten the periodic table. Now she's burning a hole through the kitchen table. Burning with science. But her kids' love for the mom is truly transparent. Proof you don't have to be perfect to be the perfect parent. Don't tell Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of siblings in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back. And again, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And also, in case you weren't aware, this is WXOJLP. Um, And so, yeah, we're going to talk about celiac disease. Fun. No, um, this is actually very interesting. And so we did talk earlier about how there might be a genetic component to celiac disease. However, it seems more likely these days that um, there is actually a viral link to some autoimmune diseases. And so that it might not be genetics alone, but rather a combination of genetics and exposure to what has otherwise been considered a harmless virus. And this could be true not only for celiac disease, but also for things like type 1 diabetes. This study clearly shows that a virus that is not clinically symptomatic can still do bad things to the immune system and set the stage for an autoimmune disorder and for celiac disease in particular, said lead researcher Bana Jabri from the University of Chicago Celiac Disease Center. However, the specific virus and its genes, the interaction between the microbe and the host, and the health status of the host are all going to matter as well. So again, much like the genetic testing, it has a lot of factors going on here. But if the virus is kind of the catalyst, we can do something about it, which is really exciting. And of course, let's talk about gluten-free. Many people who have gone gluten-free don't really need to be. um, But, you know, that's, that's their prerogative because it actually has done a great thing for those who do have celiac disease, that there has been this sort of boon in the uh, market for uh, gluten-free products. And so that is actually very exciting. Um, it is a great uh, side effect to what is basically a food fad because the people who do have celiac disease, um, and in fact, many people who do have it aren't actually um, diagnosed. So there are people out there who have it and don't know. Um, And so according to researchers, 
hundred and one in 133 people in the U.S. have the condition, but only 17% of them are diagnosed. And so celiac causes the body to attack the lining of the intestines, and there is no cure or treatment at present. Basically, people with the disease must avoid gluten entirely, even needing to avoid it in products such as toothpaste and other household products. And so, you know, it's kind of like when you have to go dairy-free, you, you find that dairy is in a ridiculously surprising amount of things. Gluten is uh, in a ridiculously surprising amount of things. Um, though I do often find myself being kind of annoyed when certain things say gluten-free where I'm like, of course it's gluten-free. <laughs> like, for instance, fruit juice, like 100% juice. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's gluten-free. But, you know, that label doesn't upset me nearly as much as some others that I won't talk about tonight. Anyways, so finding a virus trigger for the disease would, again, be a huge boon uh, toward actually finding a clinical strategy to deal with the disease rather than just making the person have to completely uh, upend their life and create a kind of gluten-free zone around themselves. And again, it can lead not only to real treatments, but it could potentially lead to a vaccine. Now, the current research is in mice. Um, and as we always talk about, mice uh, studies do not necessarily go one to one to humans, but they were using human um, versions of the uh, virus. So um, it, again, might lead to work in not only celiac, but other autoimmune diseases such as type 1 diabetes. So the researchers took two strains of the common and seemingly harmless human reovirus and infected mice with the pathogen, and so then they checked for immune responses. They found that both types that they tried, the one, uh, the type 1 Lang, or T1L, and type 3 Deering, or TD3 strains, evoked immune responses that triggered the mice's body to attack foreign cells. However, only the T1L strain reacted to gluten. They found that the virus triggered a response to interferon regulatory factor 1, or IRF1, which previous studies had found in higher than normal levels in the small intestines of children with the disease. The results are of great interest considering the recent increase in prevalence of food allergies and autoimmune disorders, which suggests an unknown environmental risk modifier, noted Elena F. Verdu and Alberto Caminero from McMaster's University in Canada, who, while not included in the actual research, wrote a companion piece in the journal. And so while more testing will be needed in humans, the researchers actually already did a tiny bit of that. They looked at 73 people without gluten intolerance and 160 people with celiac disease and found that in those with the disease, there was a decidedly higher prevalence of both reovirus antibodies and IRF1 gene expression. So the, t the team suggests that babies might be exposed to both the reovirus and gluten at around the same time when their immune system is still being developed because, of course, for the first full year 
of a child's life, their immune system is still figuring things out. It's still being exposed to new things and figuring out what it should do. And so if it's being exposed to these two things around the same time, it can be, um, you know, the virus can be a catalyst. And if you have something that's caused by a virus, you can then have a vaccine. So it is very exciting. Um, and so Jabri notes that during the first year of life, the immune system is still maturing. So for a child with a particular genetic background, getting a particular virus at that time can leave a kind of scar that then has long-term consequences. That's why we believe that once we have more studies, we may want to think about whether children at high risk of developing celiac disease should be vaccinated. So, of course, that's where genetics comes back into the picture. And so that is very cool. And speaking of vaccinations, uh, there's actually a really cool story out um, talking about how Michigan managed to increase its vaccination rates with an extremely simple tool. That tool <laughs> was bureaucratic hassle. Um, and so it turns out that even if parents are not persuaded by the mountains of evidence that conclusively show that vaccines save lives, do not cause autism, and are one of the greatest public health breakthroughs of the modern era, if none of that persuades them, putting an extra hurdle in the way of receiving a vaccine waiver for their children I just do the trick. In 2013-14, Michigan ranked fourth in the country for vaccine waivers issued for kindergarten-aged children. Just a year after implementing the more complex system, waivers were already down 35% statewide with a similar uptick in vaccinations. The idea was to make the process more burdensome, Michigan State University Health Policy Specialist Mark Largent, who has written extensively about vaccines, told Kaiser Health News. Research has shown that if you make it more inconvenient to apply for a waiver, fewer people get them. Moral claims and ideology don't matter as much when it's inconvenient, he explained. So in order to get a waiver, the parents had to go and see an actual official, Rather than signing up on the internet, mailing in a form, or even in some counties, just making a phone call. Now, of course, children with allergies and immune system problems can still easily obtain waivers. Um, but for those parents who just have been swept up in the craze of anti-vaccine propaganda, this seems to be doing the trick. Now, the impetus for the change was an outbreak of whooping cough and measles as well that affected the state. And so the rule took place on January 1st, 2015, and specifically states that parents must first consult in person with a county health educator before a waiver can be granted. So sometimes a inventive solution can do what mountains of evidence of evidence based reasoning cannot. Sigh. But hooray for the outcome nonetheless. And hooray for Michigan. So let's hope that more uh, states across the country will adopt this kind of idea. And that is extremely exciting. Okay, so now I want to switch gears completely and talk about something that may not sound like it's pretty amazing to you, but it really is. And so it's actually uh, the answer to 
what is truly a centuries-long mystery. So for hundreds of years, both American and European eels have been migrating to a large oasis in the center of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, which is filled with seaweed and has been dubbed, as you may know, the Sargasso Sea. And so to reach their destination, they travel thousands of miles at the end of their lifespan in order to be able to breed. And how they've gotten there and how they get there how they get from there back to the coasts has been a huge mystery. And so the eels uh, leave the, in, in the past, basically the eels left the coast and then magically appeared in the Sargasso Sea and nobody could figure out what happened in between until the last few years when researchers finally managed to to create devices uh, that had uh, satellite tags that would actually stay on the eels and not hurt them as they made their journey, and so basically they have little um, they have little bits on them that will uh, break off and they pop up and onto the surface and send data to the satellite. And so basically that allowed them to see how the eels progressed along their voyage, which can be up to 1,500 miles. This is like serious, like romantic journeying here. And so what they found was that the eels use ocean currents to navigate to their destination. And it turns out that not only do they know to use the currents, they actually have an ability to seek out those currents. So it turns out that eels called elvers when they are young, have a magnetic sense that allows them to develop a magnetic map of the region and to target not the coast itself that they're headed for, but rather, at least in the case of European elvers, the Gulf Stream, which gives them an easy boost towards Europe and North Africa, where they then mature. We were not surprised to find that eels have a magnetic map, but we were surprised to discover how well they can detect subtle differences in magnetic fields, said University of North Carolina Chapel Hill scientist Lewis Nesbeth Jones. We were even more surprised when our ocean simulation models revealed that the little eels use their map not so much to locate Europe, but to target a big conveyor belt the Gulf Stream, that will take them there. Presumably, a little bit of work, i.e. swimming, helps increase their chances of catching a mostly free ride to their destination. And so, in order to figure out exactly how they were doing this, the team dropped Elvers into an experimental apparatus that produced magnetic fields that simulated those that the animals would experience along their migration route. So basically, they dropped baby eels into water tanks and watched where they went. Science. Um, And so using computer models of ocean currents, they were able to determine that the elvers, that any elver who even vaguely swims towards the correct direction has a highly increased chance of hitting the Gulf Stream and being able to basically glide along to the destination. Unfortunately, sad face, that's only half the battle. Uh, Unfortunately, eels are much in demand these days, mostly for the sushi industry. And I have to admit that I am guilty of the occasional indulgence in some delicious unagi. Um, So the elvers can fetch thousands of dollars per pound. um, 
and then they're sent to fish farms where they are matured before being sold on to someone's to become someone's dinner. And of course, most people who eat eel probably have no idea just how cool the animal they're eating really is. Um, yeah, unfortunately, not going to lie, I'm probably still going to eat unagi occasionally. <laughs> but, you know, still, eels are very cool. Okay, <laughs> let us go back once more to the world of physics and astronomy. It seems like I cannot get away from stories about physics and astronomy. I am like, this isn't specifically a physics astronomy uh, radio show. It's supposed to be about science in general, but there just seems to be so much going on right now. And so it's very exciting. So let us first talk about Enceladus and Europa. And so obviously they're both moons of Jupiter, uh, both icy moons of Jupiter. And you might be surprised if you're a regular listener to hear that I'm actually quite unabashedly excited about the fact that NASA has found some really cool things there and basically is like, we should go there and look for life. Um, I'm actually very much for that. Um, I think exoplanets are kind of ridiculous and it's cool to find them, but I don't think we're ever going to get to them. But, you know, Europa, Enceladus, those are right there <laughs> in, you know, universal terms, as in like, you know, they are less than a light year away, so we can actually get to them in a lifetime. <laughs> and so first off is Enceladus. And so what NASA announced is that they've discovered hydrogen in the plumes on Enceladus. And so they already knew that Enceladus had plumes, but they didn't know that there was hydrogen in them. And so that means there's a better chance than ever that Enceladus might have at least microbiotic life. And so the plume suggests that there is a potential source of energy for life that is importantly independent of the sun because they're pretty far away from the sun. This is the closest we've come so far to identifying a place with some of the ingredients needed for a habitable environment, said Thomas Zerbuchin, Associate Administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate at headquarters in Washington. The hydrogen suggests that there might be microbes that use hydrogen to create energy in a process called methanogenesis. And so that entails the microbes combining hydrogen with dissolved carbon dioxide in the water, in water um, to create energy. And that energy process in includes an extremely important byproduct, which is methane. And so methanogenesis is at the root of our tree of life. And so we think that that could suggest that there might be a tree of life taking root on Enceladus. Confirmation that the chemical energy for life exists within the ocean of a small moon of Saturn is an important milestone in our search for habitable worlds beyond Earth, said Linda Spilker, Cassini project scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Now, in addition, NASA has also confirmed now that there are plumes on Europa. And so this comes from observations from the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, they had found one before, but one plume does not a, uh, 
one one idea that there might have been a plume is not good enough. They needed to have reproducibility. So now they can say for certain they have not one, but two plumes. So that makes plumes. <laughs> um, and so it's very exciting. So the um, researchers say, after Hubble imaged this new plume-like feature on Europa, we looked at that location on the Galileo thermal map. And so earlier um, in the, uh, a couple of decades ago, not quite that much. I don't remember exactly when, sorry. Um, but we already had sent out the Galileo probe and it had already gone past Europa and done some um, thermal mapping and other things like that. And so... Um, when they looked at that, um, they note that we discovered that Europa's plume candidate is sitting right on t on the thermal anomaly. And so that's from Dr. William Sparks, a researcher at the Space Telescope Science Institute and lead author of a paper on this in Astrophysical Journal Letters. And so that is super exciting. So basically, not only are there plumes, but there is potential um, geothermal uh, energy being produced, which basically for both of these, um, both for Enceladus and um, for Europa, basically the idea is that it's like um, our, um, the black smokers that we have on the bottom of the ocean. And so, you know, there is a lot of idea that these days that that might be where life actually originated. So if we're seeing other places that show signs that they might have these as well, that's pretty darn exciting. And uh, hopefully we'll at least learn more about Europa in just a few years, uh, relatively speaking at least. NASA plans to launch the Europa Clipper sometime in the 2020s. If there are plumes on Europa, and we now strongly suspect, with the Europa Clipper, we will be ready for them, says Dr. Jim Green, Director of Planetary Science at NASA's headquarters. Now, one of the really interesting things that I didn't know was that the two icy moons, uh, despite being pretty uh, similar with this whole idea that there might be the ingredients for life to exist, um, it, as one article put it, there is a fourth ingredient for life, which is time. And so they're actually quite a bit different when it comes to that. Astronomers believe that Europa is around 4 billion years old, just a bit younger than the Earth at 4.5 billion years. But Enceladus is thought to be much younger, maybe only 100 million years old. So if life can develop on these type of worlds, perhaps Enceladus will allow us to see some of those first steps. Now, of course, this is very, very, very much speculation. Exciting speculation, but speculation nonetheless. And unfortunately, we probably won't know anything for at least a few decades. Um, but yay for cool icy moons. And unfortunately, that is all for tonight. Um, so I will be back next week with more exciting talk. Um, I might talk about astronomy again because it just seems to not be going anywhere, which is cool because astronomy is cool. Okay, <laughs> have a great night and I will be back next week. Hi, I'm Charlie.